Welcome to the SeaWorld The Conservatives podcast. Today we're talking about being in business. I'm Jennifer Thyssen, an objects conservator based in Kimmolenshire. And I'm Chloe Rumsey, an objects conservator based in Manchester. Hey guys. Hello, welcome to episode... <laughs> it's five. five, it's five, five. <laughs> Episode five, version two or or um, installment two of this topic, really. Businesses returns. I feel like I'm slightly going to say, you put this on the spreadsheet, Chloe. And then I was like, I guess we're doing this. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so this is a revisit from an episode of roughly this time last year. I think it was January or February last year. So that would be, Could be. the year yeah. 2022, it being 2023 at time of recording. And Jenny, you had set up a business, mm. brave new business into the big wide world. And we're a year on. Oh, a year and a bit, actually. I felt a bit bad that I didn't do an update for like the people who helped this me. This can be that. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I felt a bit bad because I was like, I should make some sort of collage of my adventures and like say something clever. <laughs> and I just never got that far. Sorry, guys. I do still love you. Um, yeah, because I crowdfunded to get the mm-hmm. money together just to be able to rent that space immediately when I found it because technically the business had sort of been born before then but it was sort of not toddling around you know like it wasn't in toddler stage yet so we could start wrecking stuff so that's when you know when I got there got the room that's when it felt like well this could make or break me let's see what happens (laughs) and thank you to Lorraine for all of the really interesting things that we talked about regarding money yeah, specifically and Claire, as well. And Claire Fry and as well, Claire, because yeah, yeah. that was super duper useful to talk through those sorts of concerns mm. with other conservatives in business. It was really nice. And there's some really great stuff in there if you're ever in the position of starting a business, guys. Uh, then, you know, link in the show notes as plug, usual. Plug, plug, <laughs> There's some really good stuff in there, <laughs> as well as in the freelancer episode. So, you know, but yeah, so this is sort of a one year on, a year and a bit on, uh, and sort of talking more about what it's like running a business, because many conservators do when you work in museums you sort of don't hear that much about it it's almost considered the dark side (laughs) when you're like (laughs) you work for money now you always work for money that's how you survive we live in a capitalist society it is yeah it's i think it's always i mean even love you icon but even icon with the sort of and when we're in our museums and studios and when we're doing this or not if we're not in a museum it's like the afterthought sort of thing i think it is interesting that there isn't such a thing as like a network for like the people in private practice and stuff like that and but i do wonder how much of that is maybe just like legacy of like oh but we're all in competition with each other why would we want to like support each other maybe maybe (laughs) because i no but because this is a funny thing right and i think i may have mentioned this in in the previous episode actually but on, on business but it was so funny to me when i had i went to like a women's networking thing in my local area where we were all you know business owners or freelancers you know just running they were self-employed self-employed women and i was like oh yeah you know like if i can't take on a job then you know i refer it to someone else and you know they'll refer stuff to me and they were like they do and i'm like yeah, because we don't all do the same thing. So we might be busy or like, of course, then you pass it on. And they were like, you do? <laughs> and they were, they were just baffled. And they're like, wow, maybe the outside world is really cutthroat and conservation is just nice. I think conservation is <laughs> Maybe that's how nice. it is. <laughs> maybe it's just, maybe I just surround myself by nice people. I don't yeah. know yet. But yeah, but yeah, so that, that was quite funny. Right. Anyway, so before I get too carried away, which I've already gotten, uh, we actually have a guest host with us to like help us unpick this episode and explore it. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? 
I will. Hello, listeners. I'm Alison Lister, and I'm a textile conservator, and I run my own business based in Bristol. It's called Textile Conservation Limited. And I've been doing that, oh gosh, for many years now, having started my career in teaching conservation. And then I moved out of that, moved into being a freelancer and then into this business. And I think it's great to have the opportunity to talk about working in private practice. I think it's a really exciting, interesting place to work. Strong contrast with museum work. But actually, I think there are many issues that both uh, areas of work are concerned with and, and need, need to deal with. So uh, I think that we're not on the dark side. We're all we're all on the <laughs> same side. And perhaps one of the issues is that there is this thinking that it's somehow different in a bad way. Oh, thank you so much for joining us, Alison. And welcome back. Thank you. From the Dyes episode, which is, I believe, yes. to date the most listened to episode. <laughs> I think second most listened to. Yeah. Oh, well, it's nice to know. I must have said, said something useful. So Very much so. We're sort of different levels of experience here. Like me, I'm still a newbie and you were just more seasoned in terms of like what it's like running a business. Like, And, and Chloe's sitting there looking slightly frightened like, oh. <laughs> well, I think we talked this about this in the um, building a business first episode because I'm, I'm just in a bit of a strange situation with my museum that we are in a museum so we have all of the sort of overheads and everything sorted out for us like we don't have to worry about insurance we don't have to worry about you know all of this and that but we take on private clients so I'm interested to hear about what you're up to out there if you see what I mean and how that relates Mm. to what we're doing and and sort of how like working within a museum with that security but without that freedom I don't know I think I'm just I'm just really interested to see how it relates because I know there's a couple of museums that have this sort of offer I suppose and we do consider it an offer I mean I used to work for one that did yeah I think it shows that this thing called private practice actually isn't just one thing Mm -hmm. I think when people say that, automatically everybody thinks about self-employment, about working for yourself. And a lot of people in private practice do do that. They work for themselves as sole traders or partnerships. And both of those things are very common. But also they could just be the, the sole owner of a, of a small business. And so, so that's definitely self-employment. But also you can be employed within a private practice. So you can be an employee but you are working within the private sector. And obviously, if there are employees, there are also employers. So you may be self-employed as a sort of tax status, but you may also be an employer of other people, other conservators. And then, yes, as, as, as Chloe was saying, that you some of your work can be almost as an employee, but then generating further income for that institution by doing not exactly self-employed work, but work outside of the museum collection on a commercial basis. So, in fact, private practice is is a very multifaceted thing. And I think that's something that perhaps doesn't immediately spring to mind when Mm. people talk about working in private practice. It's still very much thinking as a self-employed model. And in fact, it's much more complicated than that. And 
needs, I think, people to be prepared in different ways to go into those different settings. It's not just about, oh, you need to learn to bookkeep and accountancy and that sort of thing. Actually, these different roles within that require different capabilities, different attitudes, different you know levels of knowledge and experience. So I, I think it's really important for us to, to start thinking about private practice as a much broader, more diverse more dynamic and even more sort of inclusive it is partly museum work and partly not it's partly employment and self-employment and employers so you know it's a complex picture yeah it absolutely is and it's a really good point and i think it is interesting that actually more museums than i think do have mm. a similar model you know where there's there's a bit of what well, there's a bit of both going on you've got to monetize your conservatives of, well i mean part <laughs> of that is you know the capitalist telescope again uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, museums don't have the funding that they used to. And, you, you know, sometimes, you know, conservatives are seen as a resource that you can actually use to bring in money. I think income generates income generation in itself within the museum is is not a bad thing. It is it's a business, mm. you know, that's OK, as long as the income that is generated is actually going to fund the core purpose of the institution and is not, you know, adding bonuses to the, the top of the pile, <laughs> so to speak, that actually it's feeding in to actually, yeah. you know, support the core activities. I think that's okay. Mm. That's certainly the case with my institution. So I, I wanted to just mention something about time. Yes. Because time is is key really. When I was doing my training at the Textile Conservation Centre, we had one session about how the conservators, because there was a, a commercial element to the centre in those days, worked out or it, it was calculated how much they did. And the the notion was that you did six and a half chargeable hours of work per day. And mm -hmm. that means those are income generating hours. And that's quite a reasonable thing within a, an eight hour day. The problem is that it's a it's a notional amount because not every hour that you that you are actually doing practical work necessarily generates the same amount of income per hour, even if you have an hourly rate. Mm. And maybe you can manage six and a half hours today and tomorrow, but then there's nothing after that. There isn't any more work after that. So it's sort of a little bit of a just a bit of a fantasy figure, but you have mm. to start somewhere. Mm. And, and it does give you some sort of way of, of controlling where the time goes and, and, and your, your income. But again, I think time, the cost of time, where time goes, how one spends one's time actually is a really key skill. And I, you do need that. How, how can you come up with an estimate for work for say, vacuuming a you know a meter square carpet if you don't actually know how long that takes you now obviously mm. you can do it very very slowly or you can do it very very quickly <laughs> yeah uh, and anything in between <laughs> and anything in between and so coming up with a precise figure that is absolutely the same every time is impossible mm -hmm. we are we are making judgments about how much time we need to do the work on that object based on its on its nature and on its condition and on any other requirements related to the project. But you still need some kind of average figure that perhaps you start with and mm. say, well, in this case, it's I can do it a little quicker, it's very strong, it isn't very dirty, or I will need to take a little longer, perhaps 
half as long again because I can see that it's dirty, that it's very fragile, that, you know, it's a bit bigger than they said, whatever it is. But I think having some sort of baseline, something to start with is really necessary. Otherwise, Mm. your estimates can be hopelessly out. Yeah. And I think we are always fighting with our innate and and kind of trained notion of needing to do everything to the nth degree in the most perfect way. But in reality, doing things to the nth degree in the most perfect way means that you might miss a deadline. It's unrealistic. So we have to sort of bring in the ideas as soon as possible that, you know, perfection doesn't exist. But it's a hard one because I think we immediately start thinking, oh, no, I'm compromising. I'm making compromises. And, and I, I, I think we have to stop that notion of, of compromise. This is about adapting to meet the requirements of a particular project, doing something that is reasonable within the time and the budget and the expectation of the client, whatever it is. And if that means, you know, I I took five minutes less time to vacuum than I could have done, then that's okay. And, you know, not not to feel that I've somehow done a lesser job or I've compromised my principles. I'm 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 working to something that is realistic. And all professionals do need to do that. You know, I, I think at the same time as pursuing quality, we also need to say, well, what is reasonable? What is what is enough? Uh, and to get used to that idea of, of enough. Mm, perfection is the enemy of good. Uh, and I quite like that. I, I'm still bad at timings. Mm. I am getting better at estimates, but it's it's a learning curve for sure. And, and particularly for me, I think I I think my time management looks slightly different because I'm trying to work with uh, a body that sometimes works against me. So I need to factor that in when I set estimates for people. Sometimes I'm bad at that as well. Um, and I also need to know what's realistic for me. So I guess the thing I, I would like to tell people is that if you're listening to this and going, oh, I should always aim to do like six and a half hours, that may not be possible. Mm-hmm. You you may, like me, have a chronic, chronic illness that means that you cannot get six and a half hours out of your body. And that's absolutely fine. You need to fig- figure out what your productivity sweet spot is and what you can achieve and when you can achieve it. For example, I have different working hours than other people because that works for me. I need to be better at communicating them. And I have considered putting this in like the footers of emails and stuff like that. Like I work 11 till 7 and enjoy. Uh, or <laughs> but that's similar. the good thing about, about working for yourself. I think you can set those sort of parameters, can't you? Mm. You can say, you know, I, I do my best work in the morning and, you know, that's that's really all I want to be available. Or, you know, I like to take the whole of August off because the kids are, uh, you know, on holiday from school, whatever it is. I think that that should be the upside of, of working for yourself. There, mm. there are lots of difficulties, but the upside is that you it, you should have this flexibility to determine when you work, how you work, where you work. And that level of control is one of the reasons why people are attracted to working for themselves. So they feel that they do have much more control over their lives, more autonomy. And, and that's a very attractive thing, I think. Yeah, that's that's definitely one of the perks for sure. Yeah, you do have to make those decisions yourself and get to know yourself as a human being. What works for me? What kind of professional am I? If you're no longer tied to an institution because you sort of are the institution, you have to define what that means for you. So there's a lot of like identity building alongside the business building is what I'm finding anyway, is that you need to decide 
what these different things are um, because there's no brand imposed on you, which is quite nice. Like you impose your own brand on yourself. I think one of the things that I have sort of enjoyed, but also has broken me a little bit is this notion of reevaluating what I think a conservation lab looks like or a studio or a workspace. I often call mine my workspace rather than studio lab because I don't feel like either is a suitable word for what I have. I think it is a place I work. It's a space I work in, but it doesn't look like a lab. It doesn't look like a studio because I have pre-perceiving notions of what those things are. And it's not like a white sterile space. The walls are lilac or the furniture is colourful. Nothing matches <laughs> because it's mine. But where, do, where did that preconception come from? You know, are we, as we're doing our training, just presented with pictures of labs and people in white coats. And this is the standard so that anything other than that seems to be of a lesser standard. I'm always surprised when other conservatives who work for themselves come to come to my studio. I go to theirs and I'm sort of relieved that theirs looks like mine, you know, the mismatched <laughs> furniture and things not in the quite in the right place. And, you know, it's, it's, busy it is a workspace it's it's not a pristine laboratory it's a busy workspace and but that's that wasn't the picture i was given in my training either you know no so maybe we need to see more more of what people's studios are, are really like in the i space. think so but i think people are really shy because they have those notions they're like i don't i don't want to show what my workbench looks like it looks like trash <laughs> i want to see it show me your trash workbench show me i want to see it i I want to see the dog bed under the bench. I don't care that it's not like, you know, what they would do in the Met. I don't care. You know, I I want to see that stuff. Like, Chloe, yours is immaculate and beautiful and amazing, but it's never what I would create. I mean, <laughs> that's, um, it's always on show. Yes, it is. Uh, it is uh, a- we have, it's part of the gallery display almost because there's a window into our workspace. We keep yeah. it super tied your as far as I can with my brain <laughs> because we often have quite a lot going on in there so because of the collection and of the multiple outside contract stuff going on it's always like we need to have a level of imposed control but we mm. also have a separate office and that's where you know so the sweet mayhem <clears throat> that's where my sweet mayhem goes <laughs> <laughs> and then I find out at the end, find realize at the end of the week that I've sort of surrounded myself with heaps of paper and books with post-it notes in them. And I look across to my manager Jenny's desk and it's like her notebooks are stacked and lined up and everything is beautiful. And I'm like, oh, I better stack things neater. Each I don't to know. their own. <laughs> If we look at the conservation literature, for example, and and conference preprints and and things like that, actually, the realities of private practice are not present there because we, I think, in general, we are reluctant to talk about our working lives Mm. for whatever reason. Uh, There is a kind of modesty, a bit sort of humble, a bit apologetic, but why? And particularly as so many of us, you know, over 50%, I think, in in some disciplines work for ourselves. We are a large body of individuals within the sector who work for ourselves. And yet we don't appear, we don't have much of a presence within the, the kind of canon of knowledge and experience that is put out there through the literature. I'm as bad as anyone at, at sort of hiding away a little bit. 
but I think I think we have to get over that because it's holding us back. It's holding new people back, new people coming into private practice. And I'm always really encouraged and 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 pleased that when I meet other private conservatives, we are all talking about the same things. So we are all doing the same things. It's all normal. It's all, you know, what what private practitioners do. But if if you try to find us in the literature, we're not really there. And that's Mm. our fault almost. We need to put ourselves out there. As you said that you find yourself hiding away uh, in terms, you know, hiding from conferences or hiding from, um, you know, meetings or presentations or anything. My first thought was, is that because you feel that there isn't, it's not, there's nothing to offer you to to bring you there? Like if there was more sort of opening for private practice, potentially people would attend and talk about their work. Um, I think it's I think it's notable that say in ICOM CC, the ICOM Conservation Committee, there are working groups for absolutely everything, mm. including education and training, ethics, history of conservation. There's nothing about work, about conservation as an area of work, an area of employment and self-employment. And I think there's a lack there. And I think the whole pandemic situation actually has shone a really strong light on small businesses, on freelance work, on the nature of work generally and what people expect to get Mm. from work. I think as as part of that now is perhaps the time for conservation to be including discussions and debates and forums about work, wherever that is. What strikes me is that if I am at a conference and people go, oh, where are you from? Where do you work? They're very disappointed when it's not a big museum. (laughs) They're very disappointed when it's like, I have my own studio or like I work for myself. They're like, oh, (laughs) I don't know (laughs) which which box to put you in. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's just funny to me. It's possibly just that I break the system. Like the expectation is that you would say, I work for the VNA or I work for the BM or something. But when I don't adhere to that standard response, then that throws people. Does that mean that like other people in private practice just don't go to these things because they have similar reactions? Or is it just that we don't go because we have to fund it ourselves? And stuff? like there are so many things at play here for why people might not go to conferences and networking things and stuff like that. There's a lot there. There definitely are. So in fact, there's a, there's a huge sort of gap in a way in terms of people's knowledge and understanding of what the conservation sector includes in terms of places of work. And some time ago, I was I had to do an assignment for a qualification I was doing, and I wanted to write about conservation in the media. And obviously on television, there's very much the secrets of the National Trust, or was it secrets of the museums? Or behind the, the museum. scenes of the museum. Yeah, 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 VNA yep. based yeah. There's also the uh, National Trust one now, which is the like... The National Trust one. Oh, uh, is that? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yes, that's, that's new. <laughs> and and sort of at, 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 there's also the repair shop. Uh-huh. And yeah. my my point I wanted to make was that I don't work within a beautiful, enormous Victorian building in the centre of London or in a grand country house, you know, surrounded by capability brown landscape, nor do I work in this beautifully sort of soft lit 
sort of country farm building. With enthusiastic music. <laughs> I work in an industrial unit, you know, a unit in, a, in an industrial centre with graffiti and, you know, vans coming and going. I was going to title my assignment, if you're at the repair shop, you've gone too far. <laughs> I wanted to make the point that physically I'm sort of invisible. People have driven mm. from the museum past my industrial unit <laughs> to the lovely, you know, country setting of the repair shop. It's because we don't make our presence felt. And so when when you say I work for private practice, Many people don't really know what that includes. Even mm-hmm. even other conservators. I've had other conservators say to me, "Oh, well, that means you work for dealers." Well, I, yes, I may have one dealer as tell, but actually, I also work for museums and churches and private individuals and archives and libraries and schools and military regiments and universities and scout troops and parish councils and. You know, actually, I work for a huge, diverse range of people because there are textiles in all these different places that that need mm-hmm. conservation, and that that is the fantastic thing for me about private practice. There's, that's what I love: the diversity of context of of objects, but also of clients' requirements. They they want to do lots of different things with their objects, and. I want to be able to facilitate that as far as I can. And that's what keeps it kind of fresh and interesting for me. And I know that when I talk about my work and and I get asked to talk to embroiderers groups and um, quilters clubs and so on, I I think I I think they're always amazed at, at the range of practical projects that I do and the range of situations that I that I work in is they have no way of imagining what that might be um so we need to we need to explain that Mm, that's what I love about it as well it's the it's the clients yeah I mean I just wrote down like discuss discussing conferences we I mean we at some point Jenny need to do a SeaWorld conference but maybe it's not going to be oh this year um, and zoom <laughs> studio tours can we do that can we do oh, yeah. that would be so good I mean, it would be amazing I mean I've definitely seen people do like pre-recorded videos yeah, but there's yeah, no reason people couldn't true. just pre-recorded videos. take their phone and wander around I found a really interesting argument the other day uh, in a in a group of, of people in private practice D- the argument was that if you're going to be on social media then you should show only the work never yourself and I thought that was that's like polar opposite to what I do because I show both mm. me and my work. N- no offense, but it's also what gets the engagement. When people see a human in a picture, yeah. they react a lot yeah. more. That's just basic psychology. So this notion that we ourselves must be continue to be invisible nah. and just show the work was to me just polar opposite to everything that I have learned about how the world works and how people engage. So I thought that was super interesting. Mm. There's something there psychologically that it's somehow we're not allowed to exist as people. One of the other things I wanted to bring up in terms of, you know, looking back on your life, last year Jenny is that you do an awful lot the niche that you're carving out is an awful lot not bench work so for example your your brilliant sort of teaching and outreach and stuff and talks and stuff that you do do they want you to share like photos of your slides on social (laughs) media or do you want your happy smiley face saying I did this talk today you know this is a this is a photo of me giving my giving my salvage talk Seems weird. Presumably they don't want that to be seen. I don't know. Maybe that's not proper work. Oh. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. 
<laughs> I mean, conservation is is the interaction between the person and the artifact. It mm. doesn't happen without yeah. the person. It has to be shown with the person. It, yeah. It's not a magic <laughs> but it is funny what you say about like the teaching and the stuff like that because I have been enjoying that immensely and I didn't expect to do so much of like teaching and outreach events mm. and webinars and stuff like that. I didn't expect that. That's been wonderful. Even you know writing blogs and guides and all sorts of stuff. It's been great. I think private practice is inherently public facing. It's quite it ironic is. in a way that we talk about private practice yes. and all the connotations of private. But actually, to my mind, it's it's more public facing often than museum based conservation. You know, yeah. I meet face to face with my clients. They come to my studio. I go yeah. out to their place. You've got to get to know them. You do. Exactly. You need to find out really what they're wanting. You need to be kind of you know, having a discussion about their what they anticipate is going to happen, what mm-hmm. they want to do with their object. And actually, you really have to engage with your clients in order to be able to do what you need to do. So it is, to my mind, a really public facing area of work. And that's part of the enjoyment of it, to be honest. I enjoy the conversations that I have with the, with the clients and I enjoy their their enthusiasm, their appreciation, their kind of connection. I hear about their connection with their objects, what what, what history and meaning and value the objects have for them on a personal level, what they want to do in the future. But also you get instant feedback on your work, you know, mostly good, occasionally not quite what I hoped, but, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it, there is, there is this sort of connection with with the with the people, and and I think that's very important. Mm. I think it's not just about the object. Also, no, no one tells you the sweet hit of like just sitting in front of someone and they just burst into tears and have a proper little moment. Of, oh my god, yes! <laughs> no one tells you about the good no. stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's the it's the emotional reactions that really that sort of really show you why we do it. There has been quite a lot of research done on why people become self employed, and I I've been looking at various books in written about this and particularly why women become self-employed and I think Mm. conservation is heavily female really and there seem to be these two factors people are either sort of pushed into self-employment through for example being made redundant from being employed and then not being any other opportunities to to work or pulled into self-employment actually it's something that is attractive and appealing and and fits with their other aspects of their lives or or how they they want to be themselves what they want to do with their with their time and I think it would be good if there was much more of the sort of things that would pull people into private practice rather than feeling it's just something that you have to do if there's nothing else available but in order to succeed, there needs to be more attention given to the capabilities that private practitioners need to do what they do well. Now, you do learn that over time, that it can be a sort of long and painful process. And I think I would hope that somehow there should be a way of facilitating the development of these capabilities uh, within people to in order that they can achieve success more quickly and more easily and less painfully. That does require people like me who've been doing it a long time to talk about what works, what doesn't work, what I did well, what I didn't do well, what even just, you know, what I still don't do well, what would really like to. 
and to see, to sort of put ourselves out there. And I think there's also a great deal of, of strength to be drawn from just talking with others who are in a similar situation so that you know that actually you're doing the best you possibly can. You know, I, I think there's always a feeling constantly failing. Perhaps we're all like that as conservatives. We're all sort of... <laughs> Not good enough. We have not achieved perfection. Um, and, and, and just having some kind of network, you know, and I do have informal networks. I know a lot of private practitioners, but, but to sort of communicate more about, about all the potential, you know, I think private practice has a huge amount of, of potential as, as a place for a really interesting career, demanding and challenging, but a lot of growth, a lot of development. And I think it's, we need to harness the potential of private practice for developing the profession as a whole, whether it's learning techniques. I think there's a great deal of innovation because we kind of have to be resourceful. We have to make things work without the whole lab and the whole an entire you know, IT department behind you. We have to make things happen. So I think we're very resourceful. We have a lot of ingenuity, a lot of creativity, also a lot of drive. I I really feel maybe it's after all these years, I'm, I'm kind of pushing back a little bit uh, or pushing myself forward a little bit perhaps um, because I think there's a lot of waste somehow. I think the, the, the potential of the private sector is not really being exploited as much as it should to the benefit of everybody. I would love to see like articles on, you know, Icon or whatever that's like the top 10 things that the top 10 qualities that you need to make it in private practice or you know so I write these things while I'm stitching I write these things <laughs> in my head I love it when it comes down to it I don't have time I don't mm-hmm. have the time to do it nobody is going to cover the cost of my time of writing that article of going to that conference mm-hmm. unless I'm prepared to pay for it myself I can't do it And I think what our lead bodies could perhaps do is source funding to support private practitioners to get more involved. They they have a lot to say, they have a lot to offer, but often what stops them is they can't afford to do it. And I think the least our lead bodies could do, who benefit from our research, who benefit from us providing jobs, providing training, contributing to the C word podcast, (laughs) the least they could do is to use their influence to perhaps find some funding, Mm. generate some interest to to make it happen for us. And that that is not happening. Mm. And and that's something that I think is not good enough. Mm. I mean, that is interesting, because I have definitely seen uh, parallels in other sectors. So the creative sector, for example, which is, again, not not a sector where people, you know, make big bucks. As, and as a way of getting freelancers to be able to share more knowledge, people put in their funding bids, for example, you know, next time some, I don't know, ACE funding is up or something, you know, Arts Council, uh, then they put in something like, and we would like people to contribute to our blog and we will give people £300 for each article. Mm. You know, so it's just there because then you haven't lost a day's work uh, for writing that article. You Sharing that knowledge didn't cost you you got something for yeah. it, even if it, even if it just puts you back at zero. Uh, yeah. You know, at least you haven't gone in the red for writing it. It's such an easy thing to do yeah. from an organisational point of mm. view. Uh, that that will be super super good to see. That's yeah. the sort of thing that we could do with. Definitely. Uh, I wanted to to knuckle down into training time, training time, and the uh, I suppose the output of educational institutions. 
why is it that institutions focus so much on museums? And is that possibly because of the expectations of the employers? Are we training conservators up for the skills that we think they need to get jobs in museums? And when people head towards private practice instead, is private practice more open to the early career, uh, shaping early careers, I suppose? I think this is a very complicated question, actually. And in my early years of my career, I worked in conservation education. So I worked on one of the postgraduate training courses. I, I know fully the kind of environment there. And some things are not well learned within an academic setting. I would uh-huh. say it's true. Some things are not well learned within a workplace setting mm. either. So no one setting, I think, can really develop the the breadth of skills that conservators need. I also think that, that yes, conservation courses, from my contact with them, most of the theory is taught in relation to practice within museums because most of the most of it is talking about systems really and so of course when you talk about pet management you're talking about much sort of bigger strategies mm. and you know all the equipment and materials and things and, and that just is not applicable so yes I think there is a, a more of a focus on museum practice than there is on practice outside of museums so I think we get out of this private public because that that's not really mm. what the question is no, here or no. museum or not museum it's about you know within an institutional setting these things are possible outside of an institution not all of those things are possible so i do think the conservation programs should be looking at what happens outside of museums and what capabilities are needed and beginning to get their students to get their head round those so introducing these sort of non-museum situations, you are introducing a much broader range of contexts in which conservation happens to help the, help emerging conservators sort of understand the complexity and their diversity and to begin to be able to prepare for that. You know, those of us who work in private practice have to make, make it much clearer, have to put it out there. What are those things? What are those challenges? Mm. Because otherwise, how, how will anybody know to, what to put in the program? <laughs> no, that's a good point. Maybe bring us in as a external consultants, maybe. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I think the course used to be consulting with the private sector about mm. what it needs. I did actually have a work placement student for the first time this year, which was really exciting. And having a physical space did allow me to do that mm. because that meant we didn't have to sit in my house. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a lovely experience. And I would really recommend it to anyone who feels like they can do that. Mm. I think more collaboration sort of across private practice, but also between the public and the private, I think would really help develop emerging conservators in in many different ways definitely to be encouraged yeah it was really fun i would definitely recommend it it was really nice i also had two icon interns so these were the heritage lottery funded um internships from, from a few years back and that is a fantastic model because the funder paid the intern and ICON managed the process, so we had a framework to work with. And then I provided the, the work experience. And I think both of my my interns had had a really good year. I think private practice offers such a, an amazing, diverse 
experience and with a focus very much on interventive work, which is which is what new graduates want to be doing. They want to really be practicing their skills. And I really thought it was an extremely successful model on for everyone, really, for, for the intern, for me, for ICON, for the profession as a whole. It was enabled through the fact that there was external funding. Mm, yeah. So I'd like to come back to what you mentioned just earlier about, I mean, you, you were talking about thinking you'd have more time to do bench work training than you do. And that's a really interesting, yeah. <laughs> like, I suppose, assessment of your last year is that you thought is this would be a sort of developmental year where you'd have some work, but also some some time to to work on yourself, I guess, uh, work on your skills. <laughs> and you've not had that. How do we manage that? The sort of development of skills and taking time to work on things that are not paid? Ah, that's always going to be hard, isn't it? So I mean, obviously, I'm grateful that I haven't really, in some ways, grateful that I haven't necessarily had loads of time mm. free, I guess. I can work on improving that so that I can actually get to a point where I can, you know, pay myself. That'd be great. <laughs> um, but in, I'm, I'm not a success guy. So I'm just, I didn't go bust in the first year. That's what we're, that's where we're at. But I was kept busier than I thought. Um, and it, it's taught me a lot. But yes, I did think that I would have more time to maybe, you know, like retrain certain mm. bits of hand skills that I feel like I haven't had the opportunity to use for a long time. In the end, I ended up using completely different ones because they were the ones required by the projects that were coming in. So it's not like I didn't have training. It's just that it was different. It, it was, it, yeah, it was just different. Mm. Many of them involved me learning new skills or a new material. Like I've learned mold making, for goodness sake, and I've worked with fiberglass. I never thought I'd do cool. that. You know, so in actual fact, it's been a huge amount of development. Mm, okay. It's just maybe not, the, the, it's, it's just not, not taking the form that I yeah. maybe thought it would. Um, but it's, it's been good. It's been challenging. It's, it's been fun in all of those ways. So actually, the, there has been loads of it. It's just that, um, it took, yeah, it took a different form. Uh, is what I would say. Um, and I don't know what your experiences are, Alison, in that sort of uh, area. I think you've really hit the nail on the head there in, in relation to working within private practice. I think it's diversity, it's challenges, it's sort of non-standard uh, situations actually offer huge uh, potential for training. And I recently complete well there was a questionnaire that came from icon about training and about accreditation and all the kind of thing and i made the point that work is developmental particularly in the private sector because you are constantly put in unfamiliar situations that challenge your knowledge and skills and even after, you know, I, I trained 30 years ago now. And even after that time, there's something new comes along. I think, I've never seen one of them before. <laughs> so I think work is developmental. And you said, you know, I've learned lots of things. Well, if that's not professional development, I don't know what is. And if we only see professional development in terms of going to conferences and workshops and stuff, then I think it's an extremely narrow view of what how actually professionals develop. Such a good point. Yeah. Alison, what's your what's your origin story? How did you get into private practice? When I 
completed my training at the centre, I did an internship year and then I was invited back by the head of studies to join the teaching team. And to, I, I spent 10 years at the centre kind of working my way up the rungs to the top. And then I kind of had enough of teaching. Uh, around about the same time, my partner got a job in the southwest. So we moved from London to Bristol. And I contacted uh, Fiona Hutton, who had set up one of the first private studios in, in the UK with Francis Leonard. Both of them had graduated a few years ahead of me. So I contacted uh, Fiona to ask if there was any freelance work. By that time, Francis had left, so Fiona was working as a sole trader. And I started working with her in 2003. And then tragically, she died very suddenly. She was there one day and gone the next. And it was a terrible, terrible time for her and her family. She had two young children. And the, her studio, had we had just signed a contract for a large project at the Royal Festival Hall, which, you know, was really going to change the studio in terms of its income and its profile. And it, it was a, a really tragic moment. So there was a lot of kind of discussion about what would happen next. And it was decided by her family that the studio would continue. And that because I was there and sort of knew how things work, that I would become involved on a more formal basis. And after about a year or so, during which time it became a limited company, I took over the sole ownership of it. So that's really how I got into it. I, I kind of, you know, we talked about being pulled into self-employment or pushed into I sort of fell into it I feel and I spent many years you know with imposter syndrome feeling that I something had fallen into my lap that I wasn't quite entitled to so at that time the the studio was based outside Bristol but after a few years of commuting I moved it into Bristol in 2008 and took on um, new premises and new staff and it's just kind of kept going. And I think very much Fiona and Francis's legacy has really supported the studio, still supports it still. So clients that they connected with, that they developed and nurtured still come back to the studio, you know, so I really sort of benefit from all the groundwork that they did. So, so basically, I didn't have to create it from scratch. It was already there. But one thing I also wanted to do was just remain involved in, in training in some ways. So we've had students on placements and interns. And most recently, uh, we had someone through the Kickstart scheme, which was something that the oh, yeah. government developed to to get young people into work. And this, I think, is also an area of training that there could be more development of. Actually, these are people who before they go into conservation, actually to have some ex some work experience within a conservation um, studio. I think I think that worked really well. So so yes, that's my my story really. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. That's a journey, isn't it? That's a very different circumstance. But again, this will still be relevant to people out there listening, because ultimately quite a few private practice conservators will be retiring eventually. It's not all tragic circumstances. Mm. Sometimes we just, you know, we're old. They will be taking on potentially other people's, you know, like the studios that they've started, uh, the private practices that might be pre-established and, and do something new and different with them, um, which I think is a, a fascinating notion. But it's definitely, I feel it's going to come up more because 
the average conservator is getting getting on a bit uh, compared to you know when we did our demographics episode oh goodness uh, six years ago um that will now be different so and i think that might come up for more people i think we're very close to that point where an entire generation my generation and a little bit beyond who were the people who established what are now the the well established private studios yeah. are going to be retiring. And I think there has been concern expressed for quite a few years about succession planning, yeah. about what happens to the provision within the private sector, which provides the public sector with conservation services. What happens when these heads of these studios stop running the studio? Does it stop with them? Is it their their baby and it doesn't exist without them and and there is an element of that I'm sure maybe Jenny you you feel too that it is your you are tied up with your business it's you as well as something else so what will happen and and should we be somehow transitioning in a controlled way or trying to make that transition more easier more successful uh, because I think we are within the next five mm. years, potentially there could be across the board in disciplines, you know, a, a whole lot of retirement going on. And do these businesses just disappear? And also the the skills and the knowledge, you know, like it's not enough to be handed the keys one day and be like, there you go, help yourself. <laughs> the, the chemical cupboard is unlocked. Uh, that's not really what we're after here. Like it, it, it does take a bit more than that for a, for a hand over, of something yeah. like a business. And I would would love to see, you know, it's almost like buddy systems where mm. like a young conservator can come in and and be trained as potentially, if they want to, the next person to run it, to pass on some of that knowledge and the skills and ultimately also the business. Uh, it would be really interesting to see those sorts of things be, being encouraged, supported somehow, so there would be money there for people to actually be able to do that. Otherwise, there might be a really weird vacuum forming uh, in a couple of years. You already see messages every now and then, either on the disc list or uh, in in other in other formats. You know, when people are like, "I'm closing the shop. Here's some equipment mm. that I want to get rid of. Uh, who who wants to come and fetch it?" Sort of thing. So you do see that every now and then, and I think we'll see it a lot more because, you know, ultimately, good stuff needs needs new homes sometimes. But also, it would be nice if these places could keep going. Um. So yeah. Oh boy, uh, so I have just been to the Museums and Heritage Show, uh, which for those of you who don't know is uh, an annual sort of trade show exhibition type thing, loads of suppliers and you know people who sell their services to the museum and heritage sector uh, get together and uh, yeah, show off what they can do. Uh, and I've never been before. It is an annual thing, but I've never been before because it's in central London and it's difficult to get to, uh, at least when you're up north like I was before or in Wales like I am now. So this is my first time going, just attending. Um, it's over two days. There's some talks and stuff as well. And it's free to attend as I think I said. I'm quite tired, so it's hard to say. So yeah, it was my first time attending. And you know what? It was brilliant. I really, really enjoyed it. It's also very overwhelming as someone who is neurodiverse 
because there's a lot of people, a lot of sounds, a lot of new impressions. The layout was confusing. I mean, there's a map and everything, and they did a great job on all of that, right? Don't get me wrong. It's just that I'm bad at finding my way at the best of times. So, yeah, there was a. It was fairly confusing time, but also enjoyable. Um, yeah, I would definitely recommend going if you can, um, if you, if you can get to London, basically. As you might expect, there were plenty of uh, people who didn't want anything to do with me, partially because I'm a freelancer. So they're like, oh, it doesn't say a fancy museum on your like conference tag. Who cares? Rude. But also, there was a certain element of loads of people there are obviously there to sell to museums, if you see what I mean. So, you know, it's people who do shop stock or signage and you know, stuff that, you know, conservatives aren't really involved with. But there were also plenty of people there who were completely relevant sometimes from my point of view they were relevant because i have special interests in things like 3d scanning and digitization so i'm interested in those people but also you know just our regular suppliers you know like the people we buy our boxes from or our shelving from so it was very useful you could pick up some nice free samples some catalogs uh, loads of business cards and just make some new connections there might be suppliers that you've never heard of before you still do good stuff and it's just they just haven't been on your radar before so it's a place to make some new connections i quite liked it i was also super pleased to see that there were some conservators there because that's a rare treat in my opinion in that i don't think i've ever seen conservators at like the museums association exhibition which is a similar sort of trade show so i was very very pleased to see that there were conservators there it was really good, I have to say. It was really, really good. What I would say is I would love to see more conservators. There, also peop- uh, there were also conservators milling about the place, which was really nice. So I did bump into a few people. Um, and there were some emerging professionals and some of the networking sessions. It was lovely meeting you. And yeah, it, it was just it was a good time. It really was. Not just to come out and see people and stuff, but I don't know, it just heartens me to actually see conservators out and about in the wild. And I think more of us could have trade stands there because people need to see the work we do. If they're not aware of what we do, then they should be. (laughs) Like, if no one sees us, why would they know we exist? So I think it is really important. And it was lovely seeing, I think, maybe four stands? Four or five stands that involved conservatives in some way. So that was really nice. It was good stuff. I mean, I cannot remember what the prices are. They are expensive, these stands, so it will be out of reach for some people. But I'm I'm sort of curious if you could lump together with other conservators, maybe in your local area or something, and be like, hey, we should go together and, like, share a stand or something. I don't know. I, I would definitely do that sort of thing. I think there are ways around it. Obviously, it's not free to exhibit. It's free to go. So I picked up loads of great freebies, like random freebies, not all conservation freebies. Uh, there are some conservation freebies, but uh, also things like someone was giving out free socks. Um, someone gave me some of their shop stock because they didn't want to take it home with them. Uh, I don't know, it was just really nice. Nice. Who doesn't love free stuff? And then um, I could combine this trip with going to the Icon members meet, which was really lovely, which is also where the recent winner of the Anna Plowden medal, Julie Dawson, did a little talk about uh, her career and there was also the Marsh Charitable Trust Awards given out and just generally some mingling and just hanging out. It was really good. It was so nice to see people, um, people I know already and people I've never met before. There were some great conversations. I wish it would have gone on for longer. It's been a really nice journey and I think as someone who is a small business owner, I think it's really important to go to these sorts of things because it can be really isolating or insular otherwise. 
and yeah it's it's a way of reconnecting and seeing other people and it's good for the soul man it's good and now I'm very tired and I don't want to talk to anyone for a week I don't think I'll get away with that but I would like to hibernate now but anyway I'm going to try to get home now there are train strikes so it is very fun and I am clearly at a train station and yeah I think that's it I think that's all my thoughts So this evening I am here with a wonderful interviewee that I recently bumped into at the uh, Museums and Heritage show that I also talk about in this episode. Um, and uh, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Hi everyone, I'm Bridget, Bridget Mitchell, and I am an accredited book conservator and I have been conserving for 30 years. I used to work at the Bodleian and the v and then 20 years ago, I set up my own business. I concentrated on making boxes for books and manuscripts. And then I was busy having children at the time <laughs> when I set up my business. And then gradually, I started doing more conservation work. And then about five years ago, I thought, mm, not sure if I can do this anymore. Mm. A lot of working long hours. Mm-hmm. A lot of putting myself under pressure, a lot of not earning what I wanted to be earning, working weekends, working mornings, working nights. And I just decided that I either had to get a job or make this work. And I live in the middle of the countryside. So getting a job wasn't so convenient anymore. Mm-hmm. So I decided that I just had to learn how to make having my own business work for me. And that's what I've been doing for the last five years, really. Oh, intriguing. This sounds like a, this sounds like a business uh, secret here. Like this sounds like something <laughs> that we all need to hear. <laughs> well, I think the secret is just making a decision. Absolutely deciding that things need to be different or things need to be the way you want them. So manifesting it sort of and like... And when you make the decision, the resources tend to make themselves available. Well, I've been following you uh, on Instagram for for probably donkey's years now. But, you know, and one of the things that you post is sort of these like little, these little thoughts or these little prompts or uh, you could call them motivational, I guess. But sometimes it's just something that provokes, you know, especially as conservators. Um, and I think they're fascinating little prompts. Was this part of your journey and making these decisions that you wanted to put these prompts out there? Yeah, usually they're things I'm thinking about yeah. at the time. And I just put them out there because if I'm thinking about them, then maybe they're useful for other people. Yeah. They're either thoughts I'm trying to expand. They're hints or suggestions, different ways of thinking about things, about your business. I feel like it's fairly unusual to see that sort of content on like, you know, conservation-based Instagram accounts and stuff like that, because we tend to be all about the bench work, look at my pretty box, look at my pretty repair. Uh, It tends to be very little sort of the business side of things or even the person behind the thing sometimes. Yeah, I think what you said there is the thing that's critical, the person behind the business. You are your business. Yeah. And so if you're busy trying to be something else... It's difficult getting comfortable with who you are and what you want to do. Mm -hmm. 
is the way that I've found brings success, whatever success is. Yeah, whatever that means to you, right? Yeah. yeah. And have you found that this uh, this change has really like resulted in change for you personally or like that your decision uh, like has manifested in change for you? Oh, I can't tell you, Jenny, the <laughs> change that has occurred for me. It's completely different. I love my business now. Oh, I saw it as something that drained me previously. Now I absolutely see it as something that supports me, something that actually loves me and wants me to succeed. That's brilliant. Isn't that what everyone wants? And in bringing that about, actually a lot more acceptance of myself, who I am, my imperfections, my fragilities, my talents. Yeah, it's a different ballgame now. Which is why one of the reasons why I decided to also coach because, like, if I can do it, absolutely anybody can make these changes. And it felt like rude to keep it to myself. Tell me about this coaching. Tell me more. <laughs> um, I had no intention of becoming a coach, I just wanted to learn how to make a business that I loved, enjoyed. Actually, I wasn't even that ambitious, just one that worked for me, produce more money and that I didn't have to work 24-7 to keep going and implementing the things I've learned through the coaching has created a business actually that I make more money in than I've ever made before and I'm generally working a 15 to 20 hour week. So a better pace for yourself. Yes, yeah, which has worked out brilliantly with children and everything that's going on, creating more space within my week so that I'm not cramming everything in, creates more headspace for being creative with your business. I always used my constant refrain was if I can just work a bit harder, if I can just be a bit more organized, then I'll be able to get ahead. And that time never came. I never managed it. Now my business feels spacious. Like I have the time. I take time. When I feel I need to rest, I rest. When I want to work, I work. I mean, one of the things one of my, I'm often posting is your resistance to working is a result of your resistance to resting. Mm. Resting helps you work. It does. It's one of those crazy things that my uh, other half has to constantly remind me that yeah. you, there's no point in trying to push more when there's nothing in the tank. That doesn't get you anywhere. But... If you take a day off and actually do something that recharges you, you come back so much stronger and you actually get those things done. Yeah, not only does that benefit you massively, but it also benefits your customers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, nobody really wants to deal with me when I'm tired and at my worst. <laughs> I wouldn't really want to inflict that on anyone. <laughs> but you also come up with smarter ideas. Yeah, you absolutely do. I think that's what I quite like about your prompts as well, is that sometimes they're things that, they're food, they're food for thought is how I would describe them. And sometimes they're things that make me question what I, how I talk to myself, for example. The most important relationship is the one you have with yourself. 
It really is. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, if there's one tip I would have to anyone out there who is running their own business is is to follow your your Instagram account and like let yourself be provoked by the thoughts because I think they have been very generally useful. And sometimes they've been exactly what I need, needed to hear that day. So I think that's that's the thing about sharing these things is that it's likely to be relatable yeah, to someone. Totally. And I'm going through what everyone else is going through. Mm. What do you think is one thing that you wish everyone out there running a business would know? I think I want everyone to know that it's totally possible to create what you want. I like that. That's such a good, hopeful thing. I like that. We put all kinds of things in our way of having what we want, but it's totally feasible with just getting out of our own way, allowing ourselves to want what we want. That's a big one. That's true, actually. I think particularly for women who... Yeah, we're not really supposed to take up space, are we? <laughs> We're not supposed to take up space and our value really is in what we give. Mm, that's an interesting one, yeah. We are valued by how much we give to others. Allowing ourselves to want what we want feels terribly selfish. If I haven't given myself what I want and need, I am unable to give other people what they want and need. Exactly. You've got to look after yourself. You've got to look after yourself, people. And that is a really important lesson for anyone out there, you know, trying to work work for themselves. I mean, also, you know, if you're working in an institution, you know, you've got to, you've got to look after yourself. You are your best tool. All right. Uh, as requested, there shall be a tour of my workspace. So it is a irregularly shaped room to begin with. So it's not like your usual room. It's got a weird wonky corner, which I'm really enjoying. It's in a historic repurposed building, which is now a creative hub. It has woodworking studio downstairs and laser cutting, uh, sign making, a print shop, an event space. Uh, hot desking spaces, spaces for rent, meeting rooms, training facilities. What else? I probably missed something. It's got a lot of stuff, that's what I'm saying. And I have one of the rooms, and mine is, yeah, slightly wonky, you know, in a nice way. Um, how to describe it? Okay, so imagine that you're uh, opening a door. It is a stylish door with a glass cutout so that you can look into my room, which is a little bit creepy, but that's okay has a sign on the door saying Curiosity Conservation. It took me almost a year to put up that piece of paper because it just wasn't that important at the time. Um, inside, the walls are a lilac sort of colour, um, which I really appreciate. I like that it's not like a magnolia room because magnolia actually just fills me with rage. I don't like that sort of thing. Um, immediately to my left is a pile of stuff because it's me. Um, but there's also my chemical cupboard, which is a metal c cabinet that I bought at Lidl and put stickers and magnets on. Uh, on top of that, we've got a stack of three sort of um, bins or recycling containers. One's for misc recycling, one is for paper, and the top one is for gloves. Uh, these are because I can sort these into different bits. Some things we deal with in-house, so... 
paper can be shredded and stuff like that and put in the garden waste. Gloves I have to sort out how I actually want to recycle it, but essentially I'm just filling the box and seeing what happens. I worry about it when, I, when it's full. And other recycling just goes in the sort of standard recycling. Next to that is another pile of stuff, because it's me. There's rolls of paper that I use as photo backgrounds when I need to take photos of things. There's a small dehumidifier from Lidl. Um, and then we've got a big, big metal cabinet that's uh, got bright green folding doors on it. I quite like it. came with the room. Uh, which is full of my stuff. So in here we've got all sorts of... Yeah, just all sorts of equipment and pieces and bits and bobs. And if you follow me on Instagram, you may have seen the uh, organized chaos of this cupboard. Uh, it's my main storage space in this room. On top of the cu- of the cupboard, we've got uh, yeah more things in like plastic crates and stuff like that. So textiles and netting and all sorts of bits like that. Uh, I also keep a box up there for like batteries to take to recycling. And glass to take to separate recycling. And I've got a big sort of basket full of wadding. Uh, it looks like a fox, so I enjoy it. It's for a children's room, but I like whimsy. Uh, then we turn slightly and there's a, there's the tiny, tiny window in this room. There was a deliberate choice because I was like, oh, I want to exclude as much UV as possible. Honestly, I wish I'd gone for a room with more natural light now, but it's one of those things that you learn. Uh, It has a tiny extraction fan in it. And then underneath there, I've got a wall clock that's bright yellow, because again, we're going colourful in this this place. There's another cupboard that I inherited from the landlord of this place. It is full of books, magazines, paints... It's small object storage. It's a bit of everything. And on top of that, I have more books and, yeah, and all of my CPD notebooks and loads of small tools and stuff in various sort of tiny drawers. Next to that is an adjustable workbench. It is the workbench in here. Uh, Currently, it's got a ceramic on it and all of my brushes live on it. Underneath is absolute chaos because that's where I store things like... Um, spare gloves, spare containers, by which I mean jam jars and stuff like that for adhesives, packaging material. So it's definitely, it has a vibe of chaos. And there's a kneeling chair. And then we turn around and on the other wall is mainly a radiator. Uh, my little logger telling me how warm it is in here. It is 22.1 degrees today. It gets very toasty in here in summer and very, very cold in winter. There's a screen on the wall that I've never actually used, but came as standard, so there you go. And then we turn around slightly more, and there's my desk. It is also height adjustable, which is quite cool. And uh, I've got a desk chair, and underneath there is more storage of stuff that I don't have enough space for. On top is what you might expect, you know, laptop. There's a small printer, a little stationery, because I love my stationery. And in front of me, when I sit here, is a giant um, notice board, which I've put purple fabric on, because again, colourful. It's got a map on it. It's got uh, Royal Mail stamp prices that I need to update, uh, because I used to send a lot of stuff out. I don't necessarily know that I need that anymore. Uh, It's got motivational postcards and drawings and... Fun stuff from people I used to work with and postcards from places I've been. My first attempt at gilding and 
yeah, it's got a lot of personality on it, is how I would phrase it. And I have a social media calendar, so I remember to actually post on things. And then we turn around slightly more, and we're slightly behind the door. Uh, on the door hangs my apron, spare bags, more aprons, uh, a bag full of cables. So that is it. There are two light fittings in this room. They're basically strip lights. Uh, they give reasonable enough light. I do have smaller lamps as well if I need more. It's got a carpeted floor, which maybe isn't super ideal, but, you know, when you rent, you rent. Um, yeah, so it's a small space. Cozy is perhaps how I would describe it. But it's perfectly good for one person, uh, and it's somewhere to grow. Uh, and that is the description of my tiny workplace. Uh, colourful, slightly messy, eclectic, and quite cheerful. I quite like it. I want to have fair lights everywhere as well. No, that's probably it. There are loads of funny things tucked in everywhere. I would love to hear what your workspace is like. If you would like to take us on an audio tour, you are incredibly welcome to. I would love to hear what your space is like uh, in your own words, however you would like to describe it. Yeah, so get in touch if you would like to share. Hey guys, Jenny here. We're passionate about creating this podcast, as you can probably tell, but unfortunately it does not pay the bills. That's why we're asking for your help. By becoming a Patreon supporter, you can help us keep creating new episodes and sharing our wild enthusiasm with more people. For as little as $1 per month, uh, you can help us keep going and keep our existing episodes online. Uh, if you go to patreon.com slash the c word you can join us there and uh, become part of our little acid-free crew thank you so much guys thanks for listening we're the c word and you've been listening to alison lister chloe rumsey and me jenny mathiason join us next time for an episode about uh, actually i'm um, not entirely sure what the next one is about but it, there'll be one don't worry in the meantime, check out our website at theseaward.show, tweet us at the Seaward Podcast, find us on the Fediverse at the Seaward Podcast at Glamorous, or simply email us on theseawardpodcast at gmail.com. The intro and music is Spring by Didi Music, used under a Creative Commons Attribution License, with additional music and sound effects by Callum Robertson. As always, this has been a Wooden Dice production. 